already mentioned that optimal is not average. And I think we know that. Aim for optimal, don't aim for average. But then what is optimal? How do we know what optimal means from a testosterone perspective? Three, two, one. Here we go. Welcome to the Dr. Doug Show, where I bring together two critical components of self-mastery, health span and mindset. The topics presented here will help you to improve both your body and your mind and help you to lead a more fulfilled life. So today we're going to talk about testosterone. And testosterone is, without doubt, one of the more controversial topics in healthcare. The problem with that is, is that it really gets in the way. Because people that need testosterone, and we're going to talk about optimization and replacement, but for the sake of simplicity here, people that need testosterone replacement, I find in general are afraid to talk about it. They're afraid to ask about it. They're embarrassed. They're, they are full of fear from the side effects. And a lot of times they don't know that they actually need it. So stick around because we're going to talk about the benefits of testosterone, both optimization and replacement, both for men and for women. I'm going to talk about some of the different ways that we can optimize testosterone. We're going to talk about replacement, the risks of replacement, and how oftentimes those risks are taken out of context and how recent literature should help to steer us toward actually making really good decisions around testosterone. So before we get to the science, I want to talk about who needs testosterone. And again, I'm talking about both men and women. And unfortunately, there are not enough conversations around this in women and arguably not enough in men either, although certainly men are being better treated in this space than are women. We are going to talk about both replacement and optimization because jumping to replacement and everybody would be irresponsible. Also, age gets in the way. And so we have to talk about optimization, not just replacement, because both are reasonable and rational, depending on your starting point. The challenge with testosterone is that when it comes to what are the symptoms of not having enough, everybody talks about libido, or they'll call it desire in women, um, and erectile dysfunction in men. But it's so much more than that. Yes, those things are true, but it is also fatigue brain fog, apathy, loss of muscle mass, inability to improve your body composition, um, loss of vigor. And the challenge with that is so many of those things overlap with so many other things that if you go to your doctor and talk about stuff like that, the likelihood of them actually testing testosterone uh, is pretty low, especially in women. And we'll talk about why. And so when it comes to testing if you have these symptoms and you go to your doctor and you say, Hey, I want to, I want to get tested. Chances are they're going to do it the way that they're trained, which is to do a single test, total testosterone, if they even do it at all. And especially in women, this is, is pretty uncommon. The thing is, is that there's a lot of confusion around testing. So even if they are well-meaning and they want to test everything, what do you test? Because there are different testing methods overall. So there is uh, blood or serum, there's saliva, um, you can test metabolites in urine, right? So there's a lot of different ways to test. And a lot of people that are doing this at home uh, with direct-to-consumer tests using um, 
serum, I'm sorry, using uh, saliva or urine, which may not be the best test depending on what you're looking for. So the gold standard is serum or blood and different tests to consider are total testosterone, free testosterone, but that can be direct. It can be calculated. It can be listed as bioavailable. So there's a lot of confusion there. And then we have this issue with different values based on different lab companies. And we're going to talk about what normal means in a second, but in, in testosterone is, is kind of a unique, um, a unique biomarker because if you go from the major lab companies, LabCorp to Quest, the averages, or rather the reference ranges, also averages, are different from one to the other. Total is similar, but free testosterone is very different. And it has to do with how they measure it. And this can be really challenging too, because if you are talking without understanding the context of what my free testosterone is, and you don't know that it came from Quest or LabCorp, then you're going to get a totally different response, assuming the person even knows what you're talking about. So then we have the question of normal. So when you look at the testosterone reference range, doesn't matter the lab, you are looking at a statistical average, and it's a very wide range all the way down from the 270s up to now under 1,000, about 980. Um, we're going to talk about how this has changed over time, but remember that normal is simply a statistical average. And if I wanted a statistical average to be optimal, then you would be aiming for the same level of health that we have as the average of our general population. And I bet if you're watching this, that's not what you're aiming for. So when you go to your doctor and they say, my, my, my levels are normal, understand that that means you are average of the statistical average, which is not optimal. So we'll talk about what you can do about that. <clears throat> Other things that we need to measure in addition to total testosterone is free testosterone and understanding which, which version of that you're using, SHBG, which is sex hormone binding globulin, estradiol, and DHT. So this is what I hear. This, this is how the story goes, is somebody feels, this could be a man or a woman, they feel the symptoms that we just talked about. They go to their doctor. And the doctor says, okay, we'll test your testosterone. Now, <laughs> right out of the gate, that doesn't happen globally, but let's say that it happened. Um, and the doctor gets your labs and you're above 270 and the doctor says, yeah, you're fine, go home. But you didn't change the way that you feel. You don't understand why you feel the way you feel. And oftentimes you're even treated then for a symptom or another cause of those symptoms or a way to cover up those symptoms. And that could be in the form of treatment for depression. It could be anxiety. It could be, you know, go home and work on your lifestyle, which we'll talk about. That's kind of how it goes for men. But for women, women generally, if they go in and talk about any of these symptoms, they are generally ignored. Um, unless they go in specifically and say, I have no desire, then they may get labeled and diagnosed with sexual dysfunction and may be treated with testosterone, but not likely. Um, so the whole getting into the system is very, very difficult. And this doesn't matter if you're talking to your primary care doctor, if you're talking to a internal medicine doctor, a urologist an OBGYN for women, it's just challenging to get through that initial hurdle of having that conversation and finding somebody that's willing to have that conversation about testosterone. All right. So before we move on, um, I just want to take a moment to mention that if you find value in the content that we're putting out, please do me a favor on YouTube click the subscribe button. 
what that does is that it promotes this type of information for people that have additional questions. Let's say, for example, testosterone, it's going to show them something like this, which may be what they're looking for versus uh, all the other information on testosterone out there, which uh, if you've looked at it, you might find that it's not suitable for the audience, at least that I'm likely talking to. The other thing I wanted to mention too, is if you're interested in being a part of a group of people that are trying to pursue truth and information to help them to improve their lifespan and health span, consider joining our HealthSpan Nation. In this group, we do weekly Zooms. We surround ourselves with people that are like-minded. We help to encourage each other and to promote lifespan, health span, and performance, and really to push forward the concepts of self-mastery. So if you're interested in that, uh, if you're on YouTube, look for the link in the description. If you're elsewhere, just go to drdouglucas.com and you'll find a link to all the things. All right. So I already mentioned that optimal is not average. And I think we know that. Aim for optimal, don't aim for average. But then what is optimal? How do we know what optimal means from a testosterone perspective? And for those of you that are watching this, I'm actually going to pull this up because there was a, a great study. It was from a, a while ago, but there's a great study um, that is here. So this is a study from 2007. And for those that can't see this, I'll just describe it. It says um, um, a study from 2007 titled A Population Level Decline in Serum Testosterone Levels in American Men. So what did they do? I'm going to show you this chart here. Um, so let me bring this up. So um, they measured testosterone levels in men in the United States over the course of a couple of years, but at different, um, not quite generations, but different decades. So I pulled up this figure and, and for those that can't see this, I'll just describe it. This is labeled as figure one um, and it's an X and Y axis uh, graph. And so on the Y axis, you have total testosterone and it starts at 350 and it goes up to 550 arguably too low. Um, and then the uh, x-axis is age, so 45 to 80. So there are three black squiggly lines and then some dotted squiggly lines. Um, and it's a little confusing, but the overall picture here is this, is that there's kind of three different groups, T1, T2, and T3. Uh, T1 were measured in 1987 to 1989. T2 measured 95 to 97. T3 measured 02 to 04. So these are two-year periods of time. And uh, what they did was measure the average uh, testosterone in these particular groups. Now, the groups did get older as time went on. But what you can really see by looking at the figure is that this is not a cause of age-related testosterone decline. You can see that each of these groups declined over time. But what's very noticeable is the difference in the starting point. So... Uh, in the first group, they started up around uh, five, well, what that would be, 530, 540 um, nanograms per deciliter. But in the second group, they started under 500. And then in the third group, they started under 450. And so you can see this rapidly de declining average testosterone levels in men. So then if you go back to what I said about the average lab, so the the lab panels, if you go to you know, go to LabCorp and look up total testosterone, and you'll see what the reference range is. Um, that reference range has been declining over the last couple of decades because, again, it's a statistical average. 30 years ago, the, the, the top end of the average was well over 1,000, probably over 1,100. You go back even further, and it was likely higher and higher, and there were less and less people that had testosterone levels of 300, 400, 500. 
And so what's happened is our average has gotten much lower. So now it's more challenging to say, well, what is optimal, especially when you say, well, the top end of the reference range is actually uh, under a thousand. And yet we know that a man likely feels his best with all of the parameters in line at the very top end of that range, if not above it. And there's some challenge here because now we get into the space of, of well, you know, you're dosing in the super physiologic range. Well, not necessarily, because if you go back to, you know, if you look at a population, let's say of athletes in their twenties of men, male athletes in their twenties, um, what's their average testosterone? Well over a thousand likely, um, you know, you're talking 11, 12, 13, you know, probably high level athletes that are, that are cruising with total testosterone at 2000. So to say that putting a man at the upper end of that average range is super physiologic, I don't think it's a fair statement. I think the truth is, is we don't really know. And we really have to go based off of the other biomarkers that I mentioned, um, but also off of symptoms. And if somebody's seeing resolution of symptoms with optimization or replacement, then we have to assume that it, that testosterone or sex hormones are at least playing a part in those symptoms um, and that we should optimize those things and minimize risks. And we're going to talk about risks. But before we do, let's talk about how we optimize. So it's not just replacement, although we do a fair bit of that. Um, we also need to consider optimization because before we get to replacement, we do probably need to put in the due diligence and try some other things. A uh, real quick comment on that before we get there, though. Uh, what I just described was all for men. <laughs> for women, if you look at the reference range, it essentially goes down to zero for free testosterone, and it basically goes down to zero for total testosterone, too. The statistical average is so low because as a woman ages, particularly if you start to include perimenopause and postmenopausal uh, timeframes, they can have extremely low levels of testosterone because they stop making it with the exception of what's made in the adrenal glands. And in our society of chronic stress, adrenal production of testosterone has been diminished. So it's not uncommon for me to see women that essentially have no testosterone, especially postmenopausal women. They have no testosterone. So then if you were to test it and say that it's within the reference range, what are you saying, right? You're saying, well, it's almost zero. There you go. You're normal. And that just doesn't jive for me. So it's actually worse for women than it is for men. So, all right. So how do we optimize testosterone? Well, this is the same for both women and men, but um, we should start by having a conversation about lifestyle. And I mentioned in our previous, uh, my first episode where we talked about uh, why we do what we do and how we do it, that we have this thing called the optimization pyramid. And I can actually, I should have this right here. I can pull it up for those of us watching on YouTube. Yeah, there it is. So our optimization pyramid is true almost no matter what the problem is, right? This is how we address nearly everything that we treat and, and sex hormones are no different. So we wanna start with those four pillars of health and that's gonna be, particularly in this space, it's gonna be sleep and nutrition. So I'll tell you why that's the case is that testosterone levels in both men and women are exquisitely sensitive to poor sleep. And we know that poor sleep is an epidemic in our country and around the world. So you can imagine that if you improve sleep, it should improve testosterone and it does problem is, is it takes time. And so we do see that we can improve sleep and it will improve over time. But, um, the, um, the amount of time that it takes to see improvement can be months and sometimes years and people don't want to wait. I get that. Um, but it's true in both men and women. So then other things that you can do that are essentially low or no risk, uh, include supplementation. So there are some things in the market like Tonga Dali, Coleus for Scoli, Shilajat, these are different herbs that will um, 
both improve the the production of testosterone um, sometimes improves receptor testosterone receptor sensitivity as well so there's some balance there but uh, these things can improve uh, testosterone and they do work but they're not going to work as much as like replacement um, but if you combine that with lifestyle and you give it a little bump um, we can see some significant improvement in labs we're going to start though by seeing probably you know 10 percent, 15 percent, maybe 20 percent improvement in total testosterone and depending on your starting point that could get you to a uh, position where your symptoms start to abate, but not always. Um, and I would argue not often, but that's still a reasonable starting point, assuming that we're not, you know, in the desperate throes of being um, really depleted in testosterone and really needing a bump. And then we have some tools for that. More aggressive tools involve using things like peptides. Um, and so uh, peptides, we're, we'll probably talk about each of these independently in, in different episodes, but things like kispeptin and gonadarellin, um, these are things that, um, can stimulate the, the production of the hormones LH and FSH that will stimulate the production um, of testosterone in both men and women. Um, and this is a good time for me to take a, a pause and talk about when we talk about treatment, we have to be very careful in, in the, the claims that we're making. So I'm going to be very clear to say that hypogonadism, which is the ICD 10 code, the diagnosis of low testosterone um, in men, um, it has certain criteria. Now, most of the men that I'm treating don't actually meet that criteria. So I'm actually officially um, on the record saying that I am not treating hypogonadism, I'm treating symptoms of low testosterone, it's not the same thing. So I'm not saying that any of these things are treatments for that diagnosis that I just mentioned. So we are talking about ways that we can optimize the body just from a clear legal perspective. Um, <clears throat> speaking of clear legal perspectives, the next thing on the list is Clomid. So if anybody has heard of Clomid or Clomiphene or Inclomiphene is a, a very similar molecule. Um, Clomid itself is the drug Clomiphene and, and Clomid is an FDA approved drug, but not for low testosterone. It's for infertility. Um, the reason why it works for infertility is that it will um, encourage the production of testosterone um, in men that have low testosterone, which can help with fertility, help with sperm production. Um, so Clomid is used in the health span space off label to improve testosterone. Now, what I like about this is that if you are suspicious of a guy who is on the fence about replacement or not, you can potentially use something like clomiphene to improve uh, testosterone levels temporarily. And we'll talk about duration of use, but I would only consider this temporarily. And again, it's off label, but it will reliably bump their testosterone levels up to a thousand or more. Um, when you do that, if their symptoms abate, then you know that maybe this might be a good candidate for uh, potentially replacement or, or longer term use of Clomid. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, and then ultimately there's replacement. So replacement is um, a very effective tool that is frowned upon uh, for so many reasons, but is a very effective tool for so many men and for so many women. Um, and it's something that we're going to talk more about. Um, I have started to use it more and more in my practice because I'm finding that low testosterone or symptoms of low testosterone are such a bigger problem than most of us realize. So, all right, so let's talk a little bit more about Clomid because I want to talk about the risks associated with both Clomid, but then I want to expand that into the risks associated with long-term replacement of testosterone. And this is where we see so many questions. And I just want to get really clear on the conversation that we have around this with our patients. So Clomid, as I mentioned, is FDA approved, but only for three months. And you can imagine, you know, if you are having issues with infertility, then 
that would make sense, right? You just take it for three months and you improve your fertility and then you, you know, hopefully are successful and, um, and having a baby. Um, there are no studies after that though, right? After three months, we don't know what the risks are. We know that the short-term risks include visual disturbances, headaches, um, but there's no long-term data. So I see a, a lot of people that'll come to me that have been on Clomid for years. Um, and you know, we'll have this conversation to say, look, you know, is this, is this really the right way that you want to improve your testosterone because you are in a very gray space. Um, and generally I would, I will take those patients and, and turn them on to uh, testosterone replacement. A lot of times those guys are also on testosterone replacement. Um, and they're on testosterone replacement because you can use again, clomiphene or clomiphene off label to, uh, help with, um, testicular shrinkage, which is uh, again, probably talk about for another day. Um, not one of the risks that I consider of testosterone because it's not really a risk. It's sort of a, a known potential side effect. Um, the risks with testosterone though, are three that we're going to talk about today. The blood clot risk, the prostate cancer risk, and the heart disease or heart attack risk. Those are the three that I talk about with my patients. And those are the three that we have really good data to help to steer the conversation and to encourage people to understand that um, they may have been told that these risks exist and they shouldn't be on testosterone because of them. But when you start to look at the data and understand the garbage data that is so often touted, look at the real data, the best data that we have, and you'll see that these risks are really, really overstated. Um, they're not zero, there are risks, but let's talk about each one of these. So the first one being blood clots. So there's <clears throat> a really interesting phenomenon that occurs and I, I can't understand or I don't understand rather, I probably can. I don't currently understand the mechanism behind how this works, but there's a subset of the population of men, women probably aren't included in this group, but there's a subset of the population of men that when you replace testosterone, your red blood cell concentration will go up. The production of red blood cells increase. Um, so that condition is called erythrocytosis. Sometimes it's called polycythemia. The challenge here though, is that it is confused with a condition called polycythemia vera, which is a, um, a, a kind of a bloodborne cancer issue that isn't just about red blood cells. And so erythrocytosis or polycythemia is only the red blood cell concentration going up. And you test that through uh, what's called hemoglobin or hematocrit, and you can see levels that will climb in some men. It's not at all. The concern is, is that if you have high levels of red blood cells and your hemoglobin and hematocrit are elevated, that you are at risk of blood clot. Now, this is interesting. If you look at the statistics and the data around polycythemia vera, you're right. But remember what I just said, polycythemia vera is a different condition. They have elevated red cells, white cells, and platelets. Platelets are sticky. Platelets cause blood clots. So that would make sense. Red blood cells by themselves do not cause blood clots. Does thick blood cause, cause blood clots? The answer is maybe. Um, but let's look at other similar things. So if you look at people that live at altitude. So for example, I started practice in Durango, Colorado. The hospital was over 7,000 feet. Everybody that lived in Colorado at that altitude had thick blood, th as thick as many of the patients that I see that have erythrocytosis or polycythemia from taking testosterone. Are there higher levels of blood clots in that patient population in Durango, Colorado? Nope. Um, it's just a response to the lower levels of oxygen in the atmosphere. So there's really no evidence to support the idea that elevated red blood cells alone 
will increase your risk of blood clot. However, because the risk, the thing that you're trying to prevent is so great, <laughs> you know, a blood clot, a DVT, a, it's a lower extremity or upper extremity, but usually lower extremity, deep vein thrombosis that can break off and go to your lungs and cause a pulmonary embolism that can kill you. So, um, the recommendations that we have in our practice and many others are a little bit just conservative to say, look, if you reach a certain threshold, and it's going to be different from doctor to doctor, but if you breach a certain threshold, you should probably go give blood. Now, the good news is, is that there's really not a downside to that. And um, there's actually two potentially really good things that come from that. So one is that we need blood in our blood banks and uh, we need blood to do the things that we do in the medicine 2.0 system. But secondarily, one of the things that I am finding more and more often in my patients is this low level of iron toxicity, of iron overload. The only way to get iron out, if you're a man, is through a needle. And so um, it's really interesting that we can actually treat both of these things. We can treat our society and culture, and we can treat uh, high levels of iron with phlebotomy. And the only time that's ever an issue is if you have low levels of red blood cells and you're trying to get iron out, which aren't these patients. So um, this is kind of an interesting thing for men where I do encourage phlebotomy, not because I'm really worried about the risk of blood clot. I think it's possible, but I think it's unlikely, but it is actually helpful for them and for the society and culture in which they live. So I don't see a lot of downside to that one. Um, not true in women, just for the record, because women generally don't get levels high enough to actually see that response. I've never seen that response in a woman uh, with the physiologic levels that I'm using. So then what about prostate cancer? Obviously, this is also only a men. Um, but this was suggested as a potential complication and risk of, of testosterone back in the 1940s. And it was really based off of no evidence. Now, intuitively, you could argue that the prostate tissue is testosterone sensitive and there are testosterone receptors. And that if you have prostate cancer and you feed it testosterone, it'll probably grow faster. So it does make sense. But like so much of the science from that era, it really needs to be qualified with an actual study. There was a 2016 study that I don't have to share, but it's pretty simple. It basically says there's no association between testosterone levels, testosterone replacement, and prostate cancer. It just doesn't exist. And the philosophy and then the principles that they um, uh, demonstrate in that study is this, this saturation principle. What it says basically is that the receptors in the prostate are very sensitive to testosterone. And unless your levels are extremely low, those receptors are probably already saturated. Meaning that if you take a guy who has testosterone of even 300 and you optimize him, let's say you take him to a thousand of total testosterone, it's not actually going to change what the prostate sees. So even if that guy did have prostate cancer, it wouldn't change that prostate cancer. Now, the only caveat to that is if he had really low testosterone, let's say it's under a hundred or whatever, um, which is kind of hard to do, but not impossible. If it were that low, and then you gave him testosterone replacement and he had a prostate cancer that was sensitive to it, then yeah, it's possible. But that's a pretty rare scenario. Um, and then we also test, right? So we continue to test. We're using PSA. And if it goes up, then we're using other tests that are better tests for cancer. Uh, and then ultimately working with our urology friends. So we have a strategy for that. I'm not worried about testosterone causing prostate cancer, but I do want to catch a prostate cancer if somebody has really low testosterone out of the gate uh, and it's going up. So uh, prostate cancer, check, probably not going to be an issue. And now the last one and the biggest one is the risk of heart disease. So here's the thing about heart disease. It is the number one killer and that's a big deal, right? So um, number one killer in the United States and I'm pretty sure across the world of adults. 
So if testosterone could potentially make that worse, that's a big deal. And unfortunately, there were several studies showing that that was the case. So several studies showing that if you were prescribed testosterone replacement, and I'll mention why that's important the way to say it. If you were prescribed testosterone replacement, that events, heart attacks went up. So that's a problem. The problem with those studies is that they were looking, they were retrospective. They weren't interventional. They, they weren't double-blinded. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have placebo arms. Um, and what they showed is that if you had a prescription, then you were more likely to have events. But that doesn't mean that they were taking it. It doesn't mean they knew anything about their levels. It doesn't, you know, basically just says that if you were sick enough to be at risk of an event, you may have been prescribed testosterone, which makes sense because low testosterone is a risk factor for cardiovascular events. So fortunately, we do have some new evidence and I do have this one to share. So I'll, I'll pull this one up for those that are uh, looking at this on YouTube. So this is a 2023 study, right? So this just came out, uh, made pretty big news. Um, but 2023 study looking at uh, cardiovascular safety of testosterone replacement. Um, and so I've got some details here and I'll just run through them for you. Um, but basically this was a study of um, a pretty big study, men aged uh, 45 to 80, and they were at risk of cardiovascular disease. So this is the population you want to study because you're more likely to see an event. They used a topical gel. I'll talk about that. Their goal, therapeutic goal was 350 to 750 total testosterone nanograms per deciliter. They didn't measure free testosterone. And they had an average follow-up of a little under three years, 33 months. Primary, primary, excuse me, endpoint was events. So heart attack or some kind of revascularization procedure, but an event. Um, and the result was that there was no increase or even trend um, to an increase in events uh, because there were actually more in the placebo group than in the intervention group. So that's cool, right? So we can just check that off and call it good. I don't think that we can quite say that. Here's why. Even though I can't think of the mechanism, the signal has kind of continued to be there. So it makes me a little bit nervous. In this study, they used a goal of 350 to 750 nanograms per deciliter. Maybe at the top end, that was reasonable for some people and they were actually optimized. But the people on the lower end, I guarantee you they were not. Because we don't have any other labs, we don't know. Also, um, relatively short follow-up. So I'm not worried as much about my 80-year-old on testosterone. I'm kind of worried about somebody like myself. I'm 45 years old and I'm on testosterone. So three-year follow-up, that gets me to 48. So what about 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, 40-year? And so, um, you know, those studies are essentially impossible to do. So we're going to have to use the data that we have. So am I saying that I'm worried about heart attack in this age group? Well, I wouldn't be on testosterone if I were. But my perspective is that we, should, we shouldn't just assume that we're not increasing our risk of cardiovascular disease. We need to actually test. So this is why it's important to, if you're going to use testosterone replacement, to actually do it in a responsible way. So we are measuring other things. What happens to your metabolic function? What happens to your lipids? What happens to your nutrients? And, you know, are you depleting magnesium? Do we have B vitamin issues? We're looking at all these things and we're also talking about cardiovascular imaging coronary artery calcium scores, coronary CTAs. You know, we're getting the studies that help us show what's happening with the, um, with the actual coronary arteries, the actual arteries that cause a heart attack and events. Because I want to know, I want to follow people and see if they're getting worse, if we're actually 
not improving their health span. Because if you feel great and you're on testosterone, but you have a heart attack, I didn't do any favors, right? So we really need to know what's going on. I don't think that we can say for sure that this isn't a risk, but I can tell you that I would rather live how I feel now than how I felt five years ago for the time in which it gives me to live. So most of my patients feel that way. That's why we do what we do, but we do continue to monitor it because there are ways that we can potentially diminish that risk as well. So I don't think we can necessarily close the door on that, but there are certainly ways that we can manage that and continue to watch it. So in general, I think that testosterone optimization and replacement in both men, in both men and women is crucial to health optimization. It is a huge component um, because it will help you feel better. It will help you with these things that are really hard to objectify, like vigor, vitality, competitive nature, and desire. And I'm not talking about just desire for sex, although it will help you with that too, but it's desire to work out, a desire to get out of bed in the morning, a desire to be active, and yeah, a desire to be intimate as well. In men, this is a really highly scrutinized space, and it's very difficult for men to get the care that they need. In women, it's damn near impossible. And so if you are a woman or a man, but especially if you're a woman, find somebody who can have this conversation with you. Um, there are good ways and, and bad ways to do this in women. That's a conversation for another day. I wanted to lump everybody together in this talk because this is really my testosterone 101. I want to get people into the, the headspace of understanding that we need to have this conversation. Um, you have to talk with somebody and, and understand that different functional medicine doctors have different prescribing rights. You need to work with somebody that can actually prescribe testosterone, which in the United States at this point in time is a controlled substance. And so you have to be working with a physician who can prescribe controlled substances. Otherwise you're going to get some kind of a supplement or some kind of a something that is maybe going to help you, but is probably not what you're seeking. So that's it. Remember that we are created for greatness. So seek optimal, not average. Don't be afraid to be extraordinary because that's what it takes. So uh, if you haven't already, please click that subscribe button on YouTube. Otherwise, we love reviews on our podcast platforms. Um, if you haven't joined yet, consider joining our HealthSpan Nation where you can get discounts for products that we talk about on the podcast, resources, recommendations, and weekly Zooms with the ability to do question and answer with myself and with my team members. If you're anywhere other than YouTube, go to drdouglucas.com and you can find a link for that. Um, if you're on YouTube, there's a link in the description below. And now the disclaimer. This presentation is for general informational purposes only, does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this presentation are at the user's own risk. The content in this presentation is not intended to be substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. See you next time.